We're going to look at Romans 7 from verse 25 through to chapter 8, verse 4. It's just a few verses, and I don't think these verses say anything particularly new. I think it's one of the places where Paul has been taking us on a journey up a steep mountainside and we've been huffing and puffing as we worked our way through the various things that he's been saying and here is a little flat bit on the mountain where we can sit down have a cup of tea and a rest and look at the view and see where we've got to and I think that's what he's doing in chapter 7 verse 25 to chapter 8 verse 4 he's summarizing the position of the Christian believer and I don't know what you are thinking and how you are feeling this morning you might be feeling a little bit ill you might be rather stressed you might have been very busy you might be rather distracted you might be disappointed with this present world or you might be so excited by its prospects all sorts of different conditions and I have to say that these particular verses don't address any of those things as such but what the verses do do is write something more important over the top of them so whatever of those you are these verses say something more important than any of that and that's uh, I think that is the the way to take what we're looking at this morning just as a reminder for where we've been uh, where we've climbed up in Romans chapters 1 and 2 were to do with sin and the wrath of God around chapter 3 was to do with how God would count us in the group of people not guilty rather than guilty how can we be counted righteous how can we be justified and he included uh, in that belonging to Jesus Christ which he took into chapter 4, 5 and 6 where he's talking not about justification but about transformation and all the way through he's been centering on Jesus Christ and all the way through uh, he's been keeping an eye on the Old Testament of the Bible there are Jewish people who are listening to him and saying well hold on a minute we've already got what God says we already have the law uh, wh where does that fit in and he's been referring to that all the way through well that's uh, where we've climbed up and here we arrive in verse 25 with a therefore except the NIV translates it then so then it's in verse 25 thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord so then I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law but in the sinful nature a slave to the law of sin and then the next verse says therefore looks as though he's saying two different things so then and therefore in the original Greek it's the same word uh, it's not a necessarily strong word it's just saying this being the case uh, all words have a range of meanings uh, this word can simply mean th this being the case uh, this is where we got this is the position we're in uh, 
and it's used in Mark 11 verse 13 although uh, having looked at the NIV this morning it's not particularly clear where but it, this is the bit where Jesus uh, is on the way to Jerusalem he's hungry he sees a fig tree uh, and this being the case he has a look for some uh, fruit uh, therefore this being the case you could say uh, we're on the beach it's a sunny day um, there's an ice cream shop uh, got some money in my pocket this being the case this is what the situation is we'll go and buy an ice cream and I think Paul is saying what is the case and he says it twice and I'd like to go through in four points uh, what he says is the case and where this leaves us so very uh, very simple these are summaries of things I think that he's mentioned before so summary number one this being the case so this is the case then I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law but in the flesh or in the sinful nature a slave to the law of sin so I think he's saying this is the case this then is the case I'm in conflict as a believer I experience within myself conflicting things going on conflicting powers conflicting pulls conflicting forces within me I'm in conflict but Paul is going to say there's nothing wrong with being in that conflict if you want to think of it as a fight it's a good fight it's the right fight to be in it's a good conflict and he says it is a normal conflict this is normal for the Christian life so what's the conflict I don't know whether you remember uh, the other week we looked at where he says it's I uh, well in the sense it's not I uh, there's a, the, the conflict as it were between what's going on he says uh, in my mind uh, that's what he says in, in my mind I'm a slave to God's law but in my sinful nature a slave to the law of sin in my mind I serve God's law in my flesh in my sinful nature I serve the law of sin There's two conflicting powers principles at work within me so just to enlarge on that I serve within me somehow it is true to say as a believer I am serving God's law not in the um, sense that I eat all the foods that the Jewish people were told to eat and don't eat the foods that they were forbidden to eat but in the deepest sense of what the law is getting at what the law is aiming for in, in the deep meaning of it I am serving God's law and this other law which he says here in the sinful nature a slave to the law of sin well when he uses the word law here I don't think he's meaning uh, the, the writings of the Old Testament he means it's a principle this is what I observe to be the case uh, there's a principle at work within me of temptation of wrong desire of wrong reaction of selfishness if you like 
uh, all sorts of things like this in terms of thoughts and words and deeds and desires and these are all contrary to God's law but I find in myself I'm capable of both of those things in a very strange sort of way and you could say that it's the um, the two-sidedness of on the one side I'm born again the believer is born again from the spirit of God the believer is raised to new life spiritually on the other hand we are still not raised to life physically uh, the body that we have is just the same as the body that we had before we were Christians and we are looking forward to the resurrection of the body and in some rather mysterious way that gives us a foot in two camps where if you like in the world of the spirit in some way but we're still in the world of Adam in another way and so number one we're in a conflict and I draw the conclusion that this is a normal experience perhaps not always an intense experience sometimes an intense experience but definitely there so I ask you to consider uh, would you agree with this so I ask you to consider uh, is that anything that's ever crossed my mind do you find that within you there is a longing for spiritual holy things and yet to your disgust and uh, distaste there is also within you uh, the ability and the reality of doing things that are against God's law do you find that conflict within you so if you've thought to yourself do you know that's never been an issue for me and what I would like you to, to think is are you really a Christian if sin has never been an issue or not a particularly important issue I ask again are you really a Christian because this conflict is a normal experience summary number one summary point number two over and above the conflict we're now into chapter 8 verse 1 therefore this being the case let me summarize this particular aspect of it there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus point of summary number two over and above this conflict the believer is in Christ you notice those words is those who are in Christ Jesus and that means there is no condemnation no condemnation uh, for the sins of my flesh there is no condemnation now please notice that word now chapter 8 verse 1 there is now no condemnation I would like to give that word its full time reference I don't think he's saying now which doesn't mean anything now what should we do today 
Now then, or now children. But I think he's saying now, if you follow my drift. He's saying, bear in mind, Christians experience conflict. That's a true statement of affairs. And here's another true statement of affairs. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And he uses this link, or he's used this link before, and he used it in chapter 5, verse 18, which I will refer back to, because this, I think, is what his thinking is. In chapter 5, 18, he said, everybody is in one of two places. They are either in Adam, chapter 5, verse 18, just as the result of one man's trespass was condemnation for all. He says, Adam, there is this linkage. Remember, God doesn't deal with humanity like bubble wrap. He deals with humanity like a, um, like a tree. It's the way he does it. And right at the root of the tree, if something is done there, it affects the rest of the tree. And here, for one sin by our forefather Adam that brings condemnation to all his children it just does and he says so that's the condemnation position if you are in Adam however if you are a Christian you are now attached to a different tree and this is the tree at whose root and stem is another person with another work. Uh, so chapter 5, verse 18, just as the result of one trespass was condemnation for all men, so also the result of one act of righteousness was justification that brings life for all men. So in Adam, one sin led to condemnation. In Christ, one righteous act I think that's a shorthand way of saying one complex of things that Jesus did, his death and resurrection, that mighty event. When he did that, he changed everything for all the people uh, in him. So here's summary point number two, which is a very powerful point. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And summary point number two seems to me to be in the, um, in the nature of a fact which is received by reasoning faith. So in my first point, I asked you to look within yourself and to say, is this my experience? But in the second summary point, I'm not going to ask you to look within yourself. I'm going to ask you to look to the cross of Jesus Christ. I'm going to ask you to look to what God has said. And I'm going to ask you not do you experience this, but do you believe it? Because this is a fact to be received by faith. My favorite illustration of something like that is of Mrs. Thatcher, the one-time Prime Minister of uh, the UK, who, whose, I don't know whether it's her son or daughter, produced an offspring. And so Mrs. Thatcher said, 
quite famously, in fact, on television. We are a grandmother. I don't know if there are any... Uh, that was the point at which I... When I saw that, I thought, I'm not sure whether she's in touch with reality, actually. But anyway, she's... We, we, we are... We are a grandmother. Now, if you think of that, she came to... She was brought into this status of being a grandmother not by anything that was within her experience. She couldn't look within herself and say, oh yes, I'm a grandmother now. I can tell by looking inside my own heart. She knew she was a grandmother by receiving a fact about something that somebody else had done outside of her which affected her. And I'm saying that this of no condemnation is more like that. Christ died on the cross. He did it. He achieved it. It changes things for us. We have to receive that fact by faith. Summary point number two. There is now no condemnation. I just emphasize the now because it is at the same period as the conflict. So if you're in the conflict, you think, oh, how can I be in, you know, I'm conscious of my sin and I'm struggling away. I feel so guilty about this. But Paul says, now, you don't have to wait a second to enter the position of saying no condemnation because of what Christ did all those years ago. There is now, this moment for you as a Christian, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's my second point. Number three, the conflict takes place within a condition of freedom or victory, if you want to put it that way. So I've now moved on into verse 2, where it says, For, or because, through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. Repeating, through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. So he, uh, the translation uses law twice in that sentence and I think again he has the idea of a principle, uh, a, a, a dynamic of operation. Uh, let me first give you an example. Think of the terrorists who terribly and heartlessly uh, planted bombs on the London Underground or on uh, the uh, buses. There was a bomb went off on a bus, wasn't there? Do you think that those terrorist acts, in fact, stood a single chance of overthrowing the UK government? No. Uh, they didn't, did they? They, they could create a lot of publicity, they could make people uh, very, very frightened, but uh, looking at it in its most uh, gross and crude way, they could kill actually very few people, and certainly not enough to topple a government. It was, in that sense, a hopeless act, and yet it happened, yet it was a terrorist attack. Uh, and you could imagine terrorists operating against a strong, State, They might do vicious acts and persistent acts. They might be always present, but never standing a chance of victory. 
And I'd like you to have that idea, or like us to have that an idea in our minds and just think about this sentence here. It said that there was a law of sin and death. So a law or a principle of sin and death. And this is the, uh, the law, the principle of sin, uh, the rules of the law don't um, remedy that. If anything, they make it worse. And we have a, a, just a complicated mess of being told what to do but not being able to do it, uh, of sin ruling and death ruling. So that, that's the regime. And we're told that that regime has been finished. We have been liberated. The, the law of the spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. So we had that law, but we've been liberated from it. So bear in mind that word set free. And we've been set free by the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. Through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. So we are operating in a position of having been set free. We're operating in a position that the former power that held us no longer holds us. And if you like, sin is no longer the governing power, but sin is the terrorist uh, within who keeps on attacking, who keeps on um, doing terrible things, but sin cannot overthrow or cannot take back its rule. There is a new government in place and that's the government that, that's in charge. So do you see this principle? There is a conflict, but it's like terrorists uh, that do their terrible things, but they can't overthrow the real government. Now the real government is the law of the spirit of life. We've set, been set free from the, if you like, the Taliban of the old uh, government, but we've still got the terrorist attacks going on. And what this says to us is when the terrorists attack, when sin and death rears its ugly head, please don't think that that stands an earthly chance of overthrowing the rule of Jesus Christ in our hearts and lives. It can be very intimidating, perhaps overwhelming, perhaps shocking, but the terrorists don't stand an earthly chance of overthrowing the king. And the king has set us free from the rule of sin and death. So my third principle is that whatever conflict there is, it takes place underneath the fact that we've been set free and the victory is already assured. So keep on, don't be intimidated. Keep on, keep on by faith. Now the fourth point is rather longer and I want in this fourth point, this fourth sort of summary point to take verses three and four together. And my summary is the achievement of this success is through the work of God, uh, is the work of God through Jesus Christ. 
and I'd like to spell it out in a few stages, which I hope will be helpful. So the verses say, for what the law, I think this time really meaning the Old Testament and its written commands, what the law was powerless to do in that it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in sinful man in order that the righteous requirement, singular, of the law might be fulfilled or fully met in us who do not live or walk according to the sinful nature but according to the spirit. Let me just say that in that those couple of sentences he's actually starting really a new theme he's, he's saying and I, I need to tell you about this in a minute so he doesn't I'm not going to try and explain everything because Paul doesn't explain everything there but let's take through what we can do what we can say number one the law of God even the law of God even law written by God's own hand cannot produce obedience to its, to its requirements and the law cannot make people truly good first stage of this important point law it can achieve some effects it usually achieves its effects by deterrence if people know they're going to get caught because it's against their self-interest to get caught but that's different from making people truly good law cannot produce obedience to its requirements and cannot make people truly good and this is what Paul says it talks about that what the law couldn't do what the law was powerless to do in that it was weakened by the sinful nature he's talking about the inability of the law of God it was powerless and it was weakened it's the same word that's used for paralyzed man uh, it, it's a sort of word which means um, without without health weak invalid and he says that in this sense although the law says thou shalt do this thou shalt not do that yet it it doesn't have the power to produce the effects that it's looking for it cannot make people truly good fundamental point goes against human intuition because human intuition thinks oh I can do you know I can be good and this is it's not the problem with the law it's the problem with human nature the law is quite right to command what it commands but it's just that people don't have the capacity to do it so in that mean, in that sense the law is powerless so number 1 there is an inability to truly please god so let me just spell that out to you if you're sitting here this morning you think well i'm quite a good person i've been coming to church read my bible uh, i'm i'm good i want to say you have not understood you have not understood what God is looking for you have not understood yourself you have not understood the what spiritual and moral rightness really are the law morality 
cannot produce that. You are unable to truly please God. Number two, there is that inability, but God has ability. God can do this. So the sentence says, what the law was powerless to do, God did. And how did he do it? He did it in these ways. He sent his own son. He did it by sending his own son. So he didn't send a prophet. He didn't send a prime minister. He, he, uh, he sent his own son. And that only really makes sense if you think of the divinity of Jesus Christ, that he is not just a man, but he is the son of God. He sent his own son. He sent his own son, it says, in the likeness of sinful flesh. NIV says in the likeness of sinful man. Uh, the likeness of sinful flesh would be a little bit closer. So what does this say? It says that Jesus Christ came in flesh. So if you had done a chemical analysis of Jesus' body, I suppose it would be pretty much the same as ours, isn't it? It's, it's flesh stuff. He didn't pretend to be in flesh. He did come in flesh. But was it sinful? Well, no, our flesh is sinful, but his was like sinful flesh, but he had no indwelling sin. So I think Paul is quite careful to say that Jesus was human, but he wasn't sinful. So he, he sent his own son in the likeness of sinful man, truly human, but without sin. And why did he send him? He sent him to be a sin offering. And he uses a standard piece of terminology that his Jewish readers would have understood as a sacrificial term. Uh, God sent his own son in sinless humanity to be a sin offering. So uh, a sacrifice. All the other sacrifices in the Old Testament were, uh, some of them were vegetable, uh, but many of them were animal and they were animals who either died or were sent off into non-existence as it were in the desert and it says that God took that idea and applied it to his son he was a wrath bearing sacrifice and it goes on to say that uh, he condemned sin in the flesh he does not condemn me for my sin in my flesh but he does condemn sin he doesn't just let it off he does condemn sin in the flesh of Jesus And in the case of Jesus, it was the likeness of sinful flesh. So what happened on the cross? God sent his own dear son, sinless but human, and put sin on him, 
made him to be sin who knew no sin, condemned sin, dealt with sin as condemned, poured out his wrath on Jesus Christ, and everything that sin deserved, everything that condemnation implied and included happened to Jesus. He bore the whole brunt of everything 100%. So he bore the condemnation. God condemned sin in him there so that for me there is now no condemnation. Summary point number four. God did this and as he goes on to say this amazing piece of lateral thinking produces the effect that the direct approach could not achieve it makes good people in a in the in a sense which we need to be careful about but it's true in this god uh, through christ produces people who do not walk according to the flesh so the verse says in order that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the spirit and it produces people who live according to this new principle not the flesh not living for self not living for satan not living for this world as if this world were all there is but they take a radically alternative view and they walk according to the spirit it's a wonderful phrase they walk according to the spirit not talking about people falling over backwards not talking about people jumping around with their arms in the air necessarily but the way they live they walk according to the spirit the work of the spirit they walk in a sense of the presence of God they walk with the power of God at work within them they walk with a sense of the beauty of God and the beauty of his ways the beauty of his grace the beauty of his person they walk with that as the sky as it were over their heads they walk with a sense of the goodness of God they walk with a sense that the God before whom they walk is their father who is a good father and a loving father and a dependable father and a giving father and all these things are in their minds as they mind the things of the spirit and therefore walk according to the spirit and it's a wonderful thing isn't it, it makes the monkey with the jar sort of pale into insignificance that God through this sort of amazing lateral step has produced this way of making sinners good people not perfect people but changed people uh, and thus the true meaning of the law is fulfilled in us and I take it that that is what is meant in verse 4 because of the Christ uh, because of the cross of Christ the righteousness of the law the things the law was aiming for all the time its deep meaning for example 
love for God and love for neighbor. This begins not in a perfect sense, not in a complete sense, but in a genuine sense to be fulfilled in us. Summary point number four, the achievement of this success is through the work of God through Jesus Christ. And that concludes our little tea party on the flat bit of the mountain where we've looked back at these points together. We're in conflict, but it's a good conflict. The conflict, it takes place under the secure regime of the spirit and this is all done uh, through the work of God in Jesus Christ through whom there is now no condemnation. Let's close by singing together.